Today, you get the pleasure of meeting Karen, who understands the challenges of building a culture in a dynamic and fast-growing company. She shares her experience around building alignment across the executive team. And so connectedness is really about having a first team that can walk out of the room, committed to one another, committed to the decision. We used to call it Yo One. While not neglecting her own team. Yeah, I think a lot of times as HR professionals, we're in the business of supporting other organizations, right? And sometimes the cobbler's children have no shoes. Karen shares how she is embracing AI to connect and sustain her culture and why she would never implement a ticketing system in HR. And so I think AI has the potential to really be a game changer for HR leaders, but you have to live in the future in order to bring it in fast enough. At the end, you'll hear a workplace confession about me as my former colleague recalls the embarrassing thing that I dared him to do for $1, which by the way, was the best dollar I've ever spent. I'm Michelle Aronson, and welcome to the True Stories at Work podcast, where we discuss the best things about working in human resources, the people, the stories, and the things that happen at work that we didn't even know about, workplace confessions. I'm a recovering HR executive, certified coach, and business school professor who knows the best stories happen at work. From heartbreaking to heartwarming, from hilarious to outrageous. So let's get started. Karen, thanks for being a guest on my show. I'm really excited to have you and uh, would love to just learn a little bit about you. Can we start way, way back? Where did you grow up and what was that like? Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me today. I'm uh, originally from Dayton, Ohio, the hub of the universe. And I grew up in a very traditional family, mom and dad married 50 years. So very traditional upbringing. And uh, I am a, a gay woman. And so that was a little bit of an interesting twist in my journey as a young person um, coming to be, you know, accepting of that and finding my way in the Midwest at that time. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I grew up in the 80s and uh, smack dab in the middle of the 80s, very influenced by the MTV generation of the time. And, you know, for a long time, I was a very closeted person at work. I didn't want um, my work or my academic performance to be influenced by who I was. And that's, you know, a crime today, as you learn, you know, as you get older and as society has changed, you know, it's um, really interesting to me that um, and compelling and inspiring to me that people are able to bring their best of their selves to work sooner and earlier because I, you know, often hid behind my partner or my, um, the person I was with. I didn't bring them in fully into the spotlight, which diminished them and diminished our relationship. So, you know, I am a, an advocate for DE&I today in all of its forms because I'm a real advocate for people being their best self and bringing their best self to work. And, you know, those are real words. They have real meaning to me. That's that's important. It really illustrates what you're talking about. Like, that is who I am, and I'm showing up in my full self. So I'm curious, when you were a child, what were you thinking of being when you grew up? 
So I have always, uh, always loved sports. And when I was a kid, I loved Chris Everett and I was obsessed with hitting tennis balls against the garage door of my neighbor's uh, garage. He didn't care if I did that. And occasionally I would break a window and uh, I thought I could be Chris Everett, though I, I never did become a tennis star or even a tennis player. But you broke some windows. I mean, there's something in that, like you had enough power to to crash through that. How'd you end up in HR? Yeah, Michelle, I always say that I'm an accidental tourist into HR. I was in a project management role for a long time, an systems engineering role, and um, I was working on HR systems. So uh, at the time, it was a PeopleSoft implementation, and the economy was kind of crummy at the time I was doing this. And a lot of people were getting laid off. And I looked around and I thought to myself, what function is kind of secure and what function is in the heart of everything? And oh, by the way, I kind of like the system thing that I'm working in right now. And, and it was HR. And so I made the deliberate move to HR into a role that was around recruiting at the time. I got very fortunate that a person took a chance on me. I knew nothing. I was a project manager. I was good in people relationships, but I knew nothing about recruiting. And it was the head for a call center, a lot of high volume recruiting. And so that was my first foray into it. But it really started with this exposure through project management and through the notion that HR is embedded in everything in a business. It's woven into everything in a business. It gets to touch everything. It has a lot of variety. And uh, that was what led me that direction. Your early HR career, like what were some of the, the lessons or stories that you had back then? You know, I think starting in recruiting is the most foundational opportunity you can get. It's the thing that stays with you for your whole career. Today, in my CPO role, I still recruit. I still interview people. I still select people. I'm doing it at the executive level. I'm not doing it at the transactional level. But, you know, having an understanding of sourcing, of the candidate experience, of the metrics related to recruiting, about capacity and demand and all those things, about how to conduct a good interview, how to give good feedback. All of that stuff is foundational. And I always tell young professionals who want to get a start in HR and they're a little weary of recruiting, I encourage them because to me, it's something that you take with you. The job jars that we have today as HR leaders are all pretty similar, but number one in them is talent attraction and talent acquisition. It doesn't matter if you're at Procter & Gamble or Kroger or the local dry cleaner or the local restaurant. We're all focused on bringing in great people. And so that recruiting skill set and competence gives you a big lift. I also think the kind of recruiting you're doing now is the most compelling because this is the culture shapers, right? Every executive that you're bringing in is influencing the culture exponentially. So what are your tips or tricks or stories of hiring at that level? That's super influential. Absolutely. I had exposure to a great person in my last role who is the head of diversity and equity and inclusion. And one of the things that she and I really talked about was the idea of culture fit versus culture ad. Do you screen people in or do you screen people out? And so that's one of the things that I've really brought with me in terms of thinking about how an executive enhances our culture. That's where I work today. We're scaling. And so, you know, we need people who bring us 
big picture ideas, who bring us big experiences because we were a small entity, about 450 people when I started, about 800 today. We're well on our way to 1,000, 2,000. And that looks and feels different as a company. So you want to have those people who can add to the culture and help it enhance and expand. And so that's one of the things that I've really opened my mind to, whereas before I might have been focused on, does this person fit? Are they exactly like where we are today? One of the good examples is in my last organization, at one point earlier in my career with them, we looked for how many jobs the person had had in the last decade. And that was something that we would screen to. And if you had three jobs in the last decade, oh, God, you must be a job hopper. Gosh, let's let's not hire that person. Well, in today's world, three jobs in a decade may not necessarily be a problem because someone is growing, developing, getting new skills, new industries. It may not have been a problem at that time either, but it's just a mindset shift in how you think about what's really important in your organization and making sure that competencies that you're hiring to are unique to your organization. I can resonate with that because I started in recruitment too, so I'm super competency-based. But when you are recruiting and you know that making a bad hire is just making your job harder. If you don't fill it right, then you increase your workload. And in my experience, I increased my workload. So really making sure that you can find for fit and competencies and culture is is critical. Yeah, sometimes you have to go slow to go fast. And hiring is a good place in that. Sometimes we feel the urgency of filling the position because it's so important and critical to us. But sometimes it's worth taking your time and finding the right individual, the person who's going to elevate the role, enhance the role, not necessarily just fill the role. Mm -hmm. Do you have a story of where you did it well or where it didn't go well? Yeah, I mean, I've made plenty of choices in my past that I haven't always made the best decision when it comes to hiring. And I think when that happens, it's about really not holding out for the things that you really value. So for example, in my last role, pace was really important. And being able to manage multiple concurrent assignments, being okay with ambiguity. And I did hire someone who took a pretty important role on the team, but the person's pace wasn't able to match the rest of the team. And the person wasn't able to deal with ambiguity or create and so it really slowed the team down and it also put us backwards in terms of being able to think about the future, live in the future, look around corners. Um, so I really think, you know, it's not just about the roles and responsibilities of the job. It's also about how you want the job to be performed. And if you could create a wish list of what those things are and be more attentive to those things in the hiring process, it may steer you to someone who is a better behavioral match or a better cultural addition to your team than perhaps somebody who just meets all the experience criteria. That's very nuanced and it's hard to do. And, you know, I think it's about the balance of those two things. Great experiences, but great characteristics that elevate your culture, elevate your team. And you can't shortcut that. Mm -hmm. I, I love that. Tell me a story about maybe one of the more challenging situations that you had to deal with. So I have worked for four or five owner founders on a row. And oftentimes as you're working with owner founders, the people that get them 
there aren't the people that allow the business to continue to grow and scale, right? And it becomes very challenging to work in those environments because the relationships are deep and strong. They're trusted relationships. They're relationships of loyalty. And, you know, sometimes you have to be able to work around those relationships or find places for those people to really perform at a higher level. So, you know, I think for me, that's been one of the most challenging environments is being able to coach the CEO or counsel the CEO on blind spots related to the leadership team and its performance. I've been super lucky to work with some great external partners that have really helped kind of help me and help the CEO evaluate talent, look at talent, look at how the future is evolving for the business and how to put people in the best spots so that there's accountability, there's clarity, and there's a connectedness in the leadership team or the first team. I love the word connectedness. Can you give me an example of where you've had to influence connectedness, maybe in one of those companies you were just mentioning? Sometimes you can have factions develop in the leadership team, right? And the leadership team sets the tone for the organization. You want that group to agree and commit, disagree and commit. They both end in commit. And I think there have been plenty of examples where we've brought decisions into the room and we think we have a decision, but then when we work outside, the decisions get talked about in a negative way, right? We're not being supportive of them. We're not being supportive of our peer. We're undermining the decision. And so connectedness is really about having a first team that can walk out of the room, committed to one another, committed to the decision. We used to call it Yo One. Everybody's on board and engaged in the decision, knows how to talk about the decision with their employees, knows how to, you know, take the rocks out of people's hands when they talk negatively about it. And so that connectedness comes from trusting one another. It comes from accountability to one another. We want everybody engaged and agreeing and committing or disagreeing and committing. Because as you walk out of that room, you have to take action that allows you to align that organization back up. You have to be able to contribute the resources. Marketing has to say, I'm all in. You know, finance has to be all in. HR has to be all in in the hiring and the support of the management and all the rest of it. You need that all in perspective. So all the big decisions that go to a leadership team have this duress behind it or have this potential for duress if the first team's not operating. And believing in it. Sometimes it's they, you know, just don't agree. We deal a lot in struggles on other people's teams and and in their areas. Tell me about a struggle you had on your own team. Yeah, I think a lot of times as HR professionals, we're in the business of supporting other organizations, right? And sometimes the cobbler's children have no shoes. And I had a person on my team who was transitioning from female to male and was very open about the process. And it was someone that, you know, the team really cared about, really knew well, was an everyday part of everyone's, you know, day-to-day work. And it really made me reflective and I got kind of emotional because I thought I'm so proud of my team for how they've engaged in the process with this person, how they've supported this person, how they've been curious about this person, how they have tried to learn about the transition, how they've tried to support the person as they're taking on their new identity. 
And it was just a really awesome lesson in the power of the relationships and how important it is as the HR leader to make sure that the relationships within your own team are healthy. Because if they're not healthy, it's hard to be supportive of other people in the organization. And so it just really gave me um, more of a focus on the health and the dynamic of my own team. And in fact, just this week, my team went through an exercise with the insights profile. I have um, three people who report to me. And sometimes our dynamic isn't great. We don't have the energy that I wish we had or you know, maybe we're not perceiving things about each other in different ways. And so it's just a reminder that your team has to be healthy. And as an HR professional, you have to put as much time and energy or maybe more in your own team as you do the organization and the people that you're supporting outside of the organization. So this person's transition was just kind of a pivotal moment for me about thinking about those relationships that I had and how much people really cared and how that care rubs off on the rest of the organization when it's strong in your own your own team. What did you learn from that experience? Like what went well and what might you do differently? Yeah, so I think the thing that was really compelling at that time is that if you think about today's world, um, people who have transitioned are really under siege, right? They're they're under siege politically and people don't necessarily think about it's a person the person just like you that has hopes and dreams and they want to come to work and do a good job and they're trying to be themselves. And so I think what I learned was you have to educate people and give people the benefit of the doubt. And when when people see each other as individuals and they understand the person, they're so much more accepting, right? It's very easy to not be accepting of people when they're not your people, right? When it's not personal, but when you know them, and when you know a little bit about them, it becomes, that's my person. I support them. I think we've seen that a lot in offshoring, right? When we get to know people in India or the Philippines, and we understand they have holidays and families and, you know, all of those things that go with being a coworker, it makes it more real and not a transaction. And so I think that's just reinforced for me that you have to have real deep relationships. What you were saying was really compelling because it goes back to that connectedness comment, right? You were saying, wow, when people know each other, not only are they more empathetic and understanding, um, they're probably doing better work. They're more connected as a team and, and all of that. Karen, something that I want to know from every guest is... What is your workplace pet peeve? My workplace pet peeve is when people make assumptions and they don't assume positive intent because I think it creates a lot of negative energy that then people focus on that negative energy and it's hard to move people forward. So, for example, I have two people on my team today that are very different and they have different approaches and different styles. And they're both really good at what they do. But sometimes their relationship to one another is strained because they can't assume positive intent. And that makes it a challenge, right? It makes it a challenge for them to move forward because all they can focus on is, you know, how I feel. And I hate to see us waste energy on 
things that don't move us forward, don't add, right? And everybody's going to have somebody that they don't connect with, don't get along with, you know, but assume positive intent. People don't come in to work to screw up, to make you angry, to annoy you, to, you know, whatever, pick your word. They come in to work to do their best job possible. They're well-intentioned and, you know, assume positive intent. Where can you find the place where um, you can see the good in them? What do you do when that happens? How do you help them move past that? Yeah, so yesterday we went through an exercise with an outside party. It was just an exercise in helping us see how our natural styles might put us in a position where we're already at odds. If you're a really logical person and the other person is super enthusiastic and they're not necessarily logical, leading with logic or analytics, what's the connection between you know, wanting time to think and wanting the facts versus like having urgency and wanting to push things through. And, you know, those two things can be at odds. And both parties are super well-intentioned. They're both really smart. They're both good at what they do. And you need them to click for the better of the team and for the better of the organization. Were there key insights, takeaways from this meeting? Did people have aha Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we all had ahas. Anytime you do a self-assessment that results in a profile coming back, you always learn something, right? Or it reinforces something that you think about yourself. So I think it was a positive experience in terms of being able to share the ways that we communicate, the ways that, you know, maybe communication doesn't land well with us, the way that we kind of approach a natural situation. What do we lead with? What strength do we lead with? And the cool thing about it was there was a lot of sharing about affirmations about, hey, I really like this about you. I really like you bring this to the workplace and I'm appreciative of that. No, by the way, that's not me. So I need it. I did that insight profile and there was a line that said, if it's not fun, it's not worth doing. And I was embarrassed. But I also know and anybody who worked on a team with me knows that that is a core truth. Like, I like deep fun. I like making strategy fun and, and doing those kinds of things. So I look for the the super logical thinker. When you can find the strengths in the other person that you know you don't have, it's great on a team. So, Yeah, I, sh- I shared a story yesterday. One person was lamenting that they don't have any kind of blue, the analytical, logical. And I missed that serving too, right? I didn't go, I didn't get seconds. I got none. (laughs) So I have always made the CFO in my organization, my best friend. And I always say that we're twins because I rely on that person's strength and I am very open about it. You know, I say, this is not my strength. I need your help. And it's always better. I always say in organizations, when your finance and HR organization are really tight and those two leaders are tight, It's like having a great infield in baseball. Nothing gets through, right? And you're providing the best possible support to the business. But I'm open about my need for that person and that compliment of that person. And I've learned over time to leverage it. It's become a strength because when that relationship is solid, it makes me better. Uh, It makes the organization better. That's good insight. I always partnered up with IT, but actually there's no money in IT. We both just spend money, right? So actually finance is, is a good strategic play that I have not done. So that's, that's funny. I love it. How are you looking at some of the future trends in HR, AI or the future of HR leadership? I would love to use AI to predict for me who's the next person that could be at risk to leave. 
I would love to use AI to help me predict where I should be putting my, my limited resources, whether it's merit increases or bonuses or equity. I would love to have AI write the best job description for me that fits my organization and my culture and does it in a way that creates inclusiveness or brings in a lot of candidates that we're not shutting people out. I would love for AI to make my managers' lives easier with workflows and all of the things that are built into systems today. But that takes planning and thinking. One, it takes an acceptance and not being afraid of how AI could disrupt you, but being part of that disruption, figuring out where is the place you could disrupt that would allow you to be more efficient, deliver more services for the organization. And so I think AI has the potential to really be a game changer for HR leaders, but you have to live in the future in order to bring it in fast enough. Mm-hmm. I'd rather mm-hmm. have I'd rather do things to myself than have them be done unto me. <laughs> I like that. What are you thinking are places that you're going to start with this new technology as an HR team? Yeah, we are already using it today specifically in job description. We're also using it. Um, we're looking at a chatbot that would allow employees to ask questions that could comb our handbook. So, for example, someone wants to know about jury duty or they want to know about PTO or they want to know about how many holidays or they want to know how to start the leave process. They should be able to do that with, you know, two clicks in a whirl and not have to wait for someone in HR. I think we can also use it to help automate our inbox so that we're sending questions and information to the right people and or to automate the answer to those things. Now, I've always been a person who wanted to put a personal touch on things. I hate impersonal things. I think we've all had experiences with chatbots where we're like, oh, you know, it's just not really understanding me. And so I'm really pushing my team to think about how do you make it personal? How do you make it feel not just like a bland transaction, but that it has some life to it? It has some interaction to it that they're learning more than just the question that they asked. It's it's intelligent. Because mm-hmm. the employee... Touch points from a culture perspective are the places that you make meaning for employees. And sometimes you interact with a chatbot, you get the answer to your question, and you're like, uh. Like eating an air sandwich. Like you you got the answer, but there wasn't anything, no filling in it. Unfulfilling. that's, That's hard because. In today's world, we want the answer, right? We want it right away. We don't want to have to wait. Mm -hmm. I don't think employees today should be expected to learn great gobs of material. Like, you know, it's just not how the world works today. Too many resources are at their fingertips. So I think automating those things allows you to focus on the experience and focus on those moments that matter, like promotions, like becoming a first-time manager, like having a baby, whatever it is that Mm -hmm. you want to celebrate in your organization. I refuse to let my team have a ticketing system. I think when you go to a ticketing system, you've crossed the line. Like you've made employees a number, like go take a ticket. Here's your ticket. Mm -hmm. We'll get back to you. No, it has to have some level of human oversight in order to make sure if somebody's taking a maternity leave and it's their first baby, you want to provide a little more care and you want to provide a little more guidance and celebrate that moment with them. It's a life changing moment, right? It's a major milestone. And so you don't want just to go take a ticket and stand in line. But it's also a chatbot is an opportunity to say, hey, we've got these other great benefits for first time parents. You can, you know, so it's a way to train your 
HR robot in a way you wish your team would always, you know, with consistency, like click on these great links because now you are eligible for blah, 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 you know? So it's quality and also like, how do you have that care and connectedness? What's the hardest thing you've had to do in your HR career? You know, in my last role, I had been there for 12 years and I had always called it my decade job. And I was really serious about that because I think that the top HR leader, that's a role that sets the culture, sets the tone. And I think it's a role that needs to transition every once in a while to keep the organization healthy. And so I asked to step down from the role and to move on because I had gone from when I started 430 employees to 2,500 employees. The business was totally different. It had become public. And I was just ready. I was ready to go do something that allowed me to be a builder again and that allowed me to develop people. And that was a big part of my identity. I was really proud to be in this particular position and it had a lot of visibility. But I knew in my heart it was the right thing for the organization. I like that. I like that. And then just the self-awareness just to be able to look at yourself and, and your career and, and be intentional. I, I admire that. It's hard to do. It is hard to do. I think it's a real privilege to be in the chief people officer role because it touches so much of the organization, the strategy, the talent, the culture. And it's a mantle that you have to wear with some seriousness, right? That if you're not every day thinking about how you can make the organization better and how you can offer more of yourself to the organization, it's not the right role for you, right? It's become even more intense. You know, a lot of people say following COVID, HR got elevated. I think HR was always elevated. It's just the people in the roles didn't always see how influential those roles were and how influential they could be in an organization to influence strategy, talent, culture, and all the pieces. My former CEO used to say, employees want to know that tomorrow will be better than today and that they have a say in it. And that's always guided me because I look for opportunities to let employees have a voice, even in the most difficult decisions or the biggest decisions. So for example, we were changing our performance management system. We put it out to employee focus groups about how it should look. We were changing the rating system. We put it out to employees in terms of what their feedback was on that system. I think you can take all of the big decisions that sometimes HR makes in the back room with other executives and put them in front of employees and give them a say in it because it becomes theirs and they become advocates. I think that's brilliant. And it is an engagement strategy, right? Uh, Making a decision or based on an article you read or something that Google's doing or you know, some big famous company is not really what your people might want. So um, that's a good point. All right. Any questions for me before we wrap? Michelle, what's one thing that every person on the podcast tends to say? What's one thing everyone has in common? Hmm. The people I've met, I don't think they've said the same thing, but I think they've had the same aspirations for HR. They're proud of the work they do. They work really hard. It comes across in different ways. Their stories may be a little different, but they just handle them with such grace and presence. And like you said, know that tomorrow will be better. And they're really working towards making a difference 
I think people love to hate on HR or complain about HR. I don't know in your company, but in many companies. And the work that that the people that I talk to are doing is powerful, impactful work and and makes a difference. So I, I hope it resonates with people and that they can hear their own care and regard in the stories that are shared. So well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We've all done something bad at work, but here's your chance to confess. From small wrongs like borrowing office supplies to simplify your back to school shopping or snacking on a coworker's lunch to the major workplace sins, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll type. Here is today's Conscious Clearing Confession. This workplace confession still makes me smile. If you worked with me, you know that I believe in making memories as a way to build culture and connection. My team worked to create memories in ways big and small. From live culture events where a thousand employees would get the opportunity to experience our values and culture in an experiential learning event, to small moments with coworkers in meetings. Here is one for your listening enjoyment. So I was in the safety committee meeting. And so you need to go and you need to contribute. We were investigating technology for preventing Sorry. Thank you. We were investigating technology <laughs> to prevent infant abduction, which is called a code pink. And so they had come out with new technology. This was many years ago where they were making these little sticky things that would attach to the infant's foot or leg and they would be stuck on. And then when they would go through certain doors or any exit, they would trigger an alarm etc. So this was technology they were very excited about. And they were passing around this thing that would stick on your infant to every member of the committee so they could check it out and look at it and understand the technology. So I'll let you take it from there. So one thing that the safety committee happened to have as one of the participants was the CEO of the organization. In addition to all the other members, we were evaluating this self-adhesive patch that, again, some of these meetings are a little bit cumbersome and boring. So there are maybe 20 people in this meeting, and I'm to the left of you sitting on a horseshoe-type configuration. So let's just pass this self-adhesive patch around the horseshoe. So we start at the far end and you and I are about halfway through the third leg of the horseshoe. You know, I am money driven. I will do just about anything, surprisingly, for a dollar. I don't know why that is, but I fell into this. Like I just walked over a cliff. And so it gets to Michelle. She does her due diligence in this meeting. You know, let's turn it over. Let's look at the self-adhesive backing. Let's look at the front. Let's look at the back. I'm like, just get it to me so I can look at it and pass it on. And she leans over, hands it to me, and she says, I don't even know why I listened. But she said, 
<laughs> Sorry. He says, I'll give you a dollar if you stick this to your book. <laughs> Sir. I'll give you a dollar if you stick this to your forehead. I looked at her. I was like, really? A dollar? It wasn't even like, I'll give you a thousand dollars. It was, I'll give you a dollar. I take the backing off, stick it to my forehead. I look up and the CEO says, are you having fun? <laughs> Oh, man, that was very embarrassing. And he gave you a look like uh, like a child misbehaving at the dinner table. But it was really funny that that was worth that oh. was worth ten dollars. I'm just going to say it was probably worth. More, I don't think but you I don't even think you gave me the dollar. I after. paid you. I paid you. We walked back to my office so I could pay you because that was worth it. And if you want another dollar, I'm willing to give you another dollar because oh, I it can't still makes me that. laugh. <laughs> I can't believe you brought that story up. That is a classic. But yep, I stuck it to myself. Yep. You literally and figuratively stuck it. The baby monitor, that still makes me laugh, man. For a dollar, that is the best dollar I ever spent. Now clear your conscience by submitting your workplace confession at physicsatwork.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the show. If you work in HR and have a story to share, please visit my website, physicsatwork.com slash podcast. Stories are what people remember and how we connect. So please share yours with me. Thanks. Haiku for Karen. Karen understands connection is essential in work and in life.